Hello and welcome to Pole Position, a podcast series from the Hoover Institution covering the 2016 election season. Pole Position is hosted by Hoover Research Fellow Bill Whalen, an expert in U.S. and California politics and elections. Hello, it's Thursday, September the 29th, and welcome to Poll Position, the Hoover Institution's ongoing look at the 2016 election, now less than 40 days away. Yes, you heard that correctly, 1,000 hours and counting down. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Joining me today in studio is Dr. David Brady, a Stanford University political scientist and the Davies Family Senior Fellow here at Hoover. Dave, good to see you. Nice to see you. Let's start this out with a rather pithy quote from somebody you don't hear that often here at the Hoover Institution, the economist John Kenneth Galbraith who once said about politics, quote, politics is not the art of the possible. It consists in choosing between the disastrous and the unpalatable. (laughs) Dave, you watched the debate on Monday night. Did that cross your mind, disastrous and unpalatable? Uh, It crossed my mind often before the debate started. uh, And then I thought the first, you know, 10 or 15 minutes, I thought were pretty good. And then uh, I thought Mr. Trump... Uh, sort of started to lose it, and by the end, I thought, uh, my view is he pretty much uh, gone the wrong way. And, you know, you have to say about debates that uh, there are some myths about them. One of them is that they're crucial. Everybody remembers five moments. Right. Uh, uh, the evidence, the polling evidence on those is uh, less than uh, astounding. Uh, however, it seems to me they do set a... So Reagan, uh, as you mentioned before, in uh, 1980... And the single debate with Carter, when he turned to Carter and said, there you go again. Right. Uh, Carter uh, was trying to portray him as a guy who'd lob a nuclear weapon into the men's room at the Kremlin just to show he was tough. And Ronald Reagan just got rid of that. Uh, and I think in 84, when he turned to Mondale and said, your age, my, my opponent's age shouldn't. I, I think that, again, got rid of his bad impression from the first debate. Right. I think Hillary Clinton did something like that, not anywhere near as good as Reagan. But I think she uh, firmed up the view that she's presidential. She has a better temperament than him. And these are all relative. She's presidential relative to him. She has a better temper but for it relative to him. And I think she also firmed up the women and I think the Hispanic vote. Yeah. Now, I'm, I'm one of those people who's guilty of the practition of actually grading these things as they go along. I know you're not supposed to score them as a fight, but I do. And I look at presentation and I look at comfort behind the stage and I look at just moments and zingers and things like that. Um, on points, she won the debate. She just was more comfortable behind the stage than he was. He had various struggles, the sniffling, which people have talked about, uh, butting in with her. Um, he had very awkward moments trying to explain basic things like his tax returns. Um, so in all, she won on points. But that's not the way to ultimately judge a debate. And the question, there are two really two questions coming out of debate. Number one is, did you achieve what you need to do to get elected president in the debate? And I'd argue on that front, Dave, neither one accomplished what they need to do. I agree with you that. You did not come away from watching those two for 90 minutes thinking that, A, he is presidential, that he has the temperament and the stature and the knowledge for the job. He, maybe he can do it in the next two debates, but I don't think he cleared the bar in this debate. And as for her, what is her challenge? It's being likable. It's being trustworthy. You can trust her further than you can throw her. And she spent her time attacking Donald Trump and not addressing that problem, so she didn't achieve her goal either. The proof is in the pudding, Dave, and the proof is going to be in polls that come out. Let me ask you, do you actually look at any of the snapshots? We have an orgy of polls, by the way, coming out right now. All these instant polls, snapshot polls, a lot of them are silly, frankly. They're internet polls, my God. I mean, 
You yep. can't take an internet poll. It's just, you know, call it. It's not done scientifically. There is some scientific polling instantly, but do you look at the snapshots or how long do you wait to judge? Well, uh, there were two. So uh, just as you point out, those polls, are, you can uh, do, uh, you did the Fortune poll. There's lots of those. Quick uh, C- you can C- vote many times. CNN does a, quote, snapshot, but it's a yeah. scientific snapshot. Yeah, CNN uh, does a sample of voters that they, from a previous sample, and they say, well, you do this. And public mm-hmm. policy Institute did the same thing. Right. Uh, I looked at those two. How meaningful are they? Both said essentially what you said. Mm-hmm. Uh, the voters in them. They both said that Mrs. Clinton had won the debate. Had she, as we've spoken here before, sealed the deal? No, I don't think she has, although she comes away better than he does uh, out of the debate, but she hasn't sealed it. So uh, the polls, uh, most of the polls, like the YouGov poll, is scheduled to come out on a Friday, and so Mm -hmm. they don't jump in ahead of time. So I think the bump, if there is one, uh, won't show till the weekend. Mm-hmm. And I do want to say one thing in 2012, and be careful of the polls, because in 2012, after the first debate, Romney went ahead. Right. Now, uh, the YouGov Economist poll, we had 50,000 people that were the same, exactly the same, so we had them pre and post first debate. Mm-hmm. We got very little movement. Everybody thought Romney had won the debate. But very few voters were changing from Romney to uh, Obama. But on the telephone polls, uh, we did get a swing to Romney by about, on average, five, six points. And the reason was because after that first debate, Democrats didn't want to talk about it when called. Mm -hmm. And Republicans did because their candidate had done better. So all of those polls, the best thing to do is take an average of them. But any jump more than one or two points, I just don't think there's more than one or two points in it. Yeah, you're right. And uh, I remember looking at the Gallup numbers from 2012. Uh, it was a, about a 50-45 race going into that first debate afterwards. It was about 47 all. So yeah. uh, Obama dropped three, Romney game two, and that swing yeah. of five. If you go back to 2004, uh, Kerry picked up about seven points out of that first debate. So yeah. there was a shift. But... We know how they ended. So, yeah, it's, I, as I tell people, it's a best out of three affair. So unless something just absolutely tragic happens in the first debate, uh, you just cannot dig out of, you know, wait till the next one to see what really happens. But um, so, yeah, putting you on the spot here. So what do you, if, you, if in theory we're right and she wins the, wins the poll and the public thinks she won the poll, what kind of bounce do you think she gets, a point or two? I, I think uh, in a real bounce, yeah. not, not a bounce due to the fact that Democrats – Thought she did better, so they were more willing to talk. Right. Uh, I would say one or two points at best. Well, you know, the phrase, it's still a competitive race. The, the phrase "dead cat bounce" comes to mind. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. For those of you who don't know that, that's a financial phrase, which means that what a falling stock has a has gained, but it's falling, and so yes. it's going to eventually go back down to earth and anchor splat. Um, so yeah, watching this for ninety minutes, Dave, and one thing which struck me in terms of the approach of these two candidates is that neither one wanted to be upbeat. Now, granted, these are not exactly upbeat times, but nobody really wanted to turn to the public and talk about better days being ahead, about how we can solve our problems. We need to unite. Nothing uplifting trying to move things forward. If anything, both tried to feed into one word, which best describes this electorate right now, which is angry. You know where I'm going with this because you've written about this. So the Washington Post in uh, 2000, January 2016 writes this headline, quote, Is 2016 the anger election? Not quite. Time Magazine, though, chimes in five months later, quote, American anger is out of control. Which is it? 
Well, uh, so we did a uh, poll for YouGov, The Economist, uh, 1,500 Americans, where the specific purpose was to get at anger. Mm-hmm. Um, now, we have had, uh, there, there uh, have been some polls in the past on anger, but they don't ask a large series of questions. So we duplicated many of the questions in the uh, NBC Esquire poll of early 2016. Um, but so let me say that the anger uh, is uh, partisan. So our earlier studies found that, say, in 2004, uh, Democrats, 60% of Democrats said they were angry with Bush quite often, whereas only 30% of Republicans said Kerry was. So the party that's in, uh, their members are less angry, whereas the out party, where they, and, and so in this, uh, our poll finds that that's pretty much true, mm-hmm. that uh, Republicans are angrier than Democrats uh, because they're angry at the Obama, the, at Obama and the government, et cetera. So it's driven by partisanship. Factors like race, white male, how well you've done right. over the last three to five, or how well you've perceived you're done over the last three to five years. All those factors weigh in, but basically it's driven by partisanship. Right. So the less educated white male is very angry. Yes. And if you're a Republican, less educated, uh, under 50,000 white male, you are, are more likely to be angry, and you, those are the Donald Trump's biggest supporters, Romney 94%. Got, yeah, Romney got about 64%. I saw in one poll of that yes. block, and another poll I saw recently had him up in the 70s. You suggest he might be even higher. So yes. Trump is clearly feeding off of that anger, if you will. Um, but looking at 2016, so first of all, there is no incumbent running. Uh, it would seem to me an incumbent would draw more anger just because he or she has been yes. the target for the last four years, though Hillary is a quasi-incumbent given both she is latching herself onto Obama, but also she's been around for not 30 years as Trump claims, right. but you know, a better part of 25 years. So you have that. Second, two very well-established figures. High name recognition. There's not much you don't already know about them. Uh, they're not fresh, and they can't really sell themselves in a different way. They are what they are. They are as-is product on the shelf, if you will. Um, And then the third thing, um, they both just seem to be magnets for negative stories. I mean, just this week alone, if it's not not her and the the Clinton Foundation and now the immunity um, to her uh, various aides of the State Department, it's him and his uh, sayings about uh, the foremost universe and so forth. They're just, they're negative dust bunnies, if you will. So (laughs) how could either really drive down the anger out of contend? Given, well, given the hand that we're dealt. I don't think they can. I think right. it goes back to your uh, er, earlier question about mm-hmm. neither one of them was very upbeat. I think I don't think they can be upbeat, either one, because the best case she has is uh, she's not Trump. Right. So when the news media focuses on Trump, she rises and does better. When the news media focuses on her, mm-hmm. he does better. Uh, so I think in the case, uh, so uh, neither one can spin a positive message out of that because their best tactic is to draw attention to Trump's weaknesses. His best tactic is to draw attention to her weaknesses. Right. And therefore, uh, it's, it's a negative campaign, as you point out. And in negative campaigns, I think anger, uh, we, don't, we don't really know a lot about this because we haven't uh, studied it over time in any uh, scientific way. We just have kind of random polls occasionally, mm-hmm. but my guess is that uh, the anger is not go- the anger is associated with negative campaigns. 
I'm going to read a passage from what you wrote here, and this should have been Donald Trump's summation in the first debate. You wrote, quote, the angrier you are, irrespective of party, the more likely you are to believe government is run for the few. Believe that government officials don't know what they are doing. Believe that quite a few government officials are crooked. Believe that politicians lie to get elected. I mean, that's the heart of his message, right? It is the heart of his message. Literally down to lying Ted, crooked Hillary. Right? Now, the reason that that's useful is while 70% of Republicans, 70% or more, agree with all those things, it's not as though Democrats don't agree. It's right. just that there's a difference. 50% or more of Democrats agree with every one of those statements, and on big uh, the interests uh, run for a few, I think it's 70% of the Democrats. So it's not as though Democrats aren't angry. Mm -hmm. They are angry or upset or dissatisfied, uh, however you want to put it. Mm -hmm. Democrats uh, are just a little dis less dissatisfied than Republicans, yeah. so that is his best, uh, that's his best theme. Right. And she can't get around that, so it seems to be her debate strategy and her strategy in the last 40 days is pretty simple. She's not going to acknowledge how people feel about government, dishonest politicians, but she's just going to have you believe that he is the biggest, lar largest walking scumbag on the planet and <laughs> just reinforce that every day. So I think we have on our hands here a genuine race to the bottom. Yeah. Let me ask you Let me ask you a question just to reverse things. So I, uh, because you, you've uh, been in these debates and you know about them um, and the intricacies of them. So I found it interesting that uh, after the miss, uh, where she brought up the Machado, the yes, Miss Machado. Venezuela, the Democrats already had a whole series of commercials ready to go. Correct. So the question I have for you is, how many of those did they have ready to go? They must, they must have had more than one thing they were trying to get him to respond to, and he fell for that one. So what, what, would, uh, what would their preparation and be like, and how does that differ from what we now see as Trump's lack of preparation? So one thing that surprised me, Dave, was uh, there was a tried-and-true debate tactic, and it's how do I, if I'm debating David Brady, how do I throw him off his game debate night? And what traditionally has been done is I dumped something very bad on David Brady that morning. David Brady's, you know, the person who David Brady, you know, chipped out of, you know, a real estate fortune or somebody, you know, David Brady's long lost love child or something like yeah. that. You know, that person comes forth that magically that morning and then voila, you now have to stand in front of the American people and awkwardly try to explain a bad situation. So they didn't do that in terms of Alicia Machado, but she brought it up at the end of the debate. And yes, they had been had this lined up for at least the last six months, talking to her, coordinating it, having the ads ready to go. And it's a very effective campaigning. Now, I think it's also part of the problem in politics today, because if you go surfing on the web today, you're going to find a lot of very bad stories about Ms. Machado in terms of her past. And and I think of anything, Dave, that feeds into anger toward politics. It's just part of this kind of uh, vortex. But that's part of the trick here. Um, I wrote a piece for Real Clear Politics that is out today, today being Thursday. And I uh, threw out a few suggestions on how to fix the debate process. Uh, my first thought is, do we really need an interactive moderator running the show? We, we live in an age of automation right now, where, especially here in Silicon Valley, where um, Amazon.com products are going to soon be delivered to you by drone. Your pizzas are going to soon come to you by drone. Um, be careful you're on the road. There might be a driverless Google car about to swerve in your way. Um, so the human side of things is being taken out of the equation. I don't understand the need to have a moderator necessarily constantly weighing in and, and trying to correct candidates on the spot. Just let them go back and forth. Yes, be a cop like a hockey referee and break them up every now and then, but for the most part, just be the timekeeper and 
you know, ring a bell or buzz them or tase them, whatever you need to do to get them to, mm -hmm. to move on to the next subject. Um, so that's one thought, just get the moderator out of the way. The second thought was maybe changing the threshold for bringing in a third candidate. Uh, Gary Johnson's been in a real interesting position in this campaign. Uh, he is on enough states to qualify for 270 electoral votes, which is one of the thresholds for getting in a national debate. But he doesn't get to 15% in the five polls, which is what the uh, debate commission has said is the standard. Why not lower that to 10%? give him a better shot and it would be intriguing with him Dave because he's at about he was at about eight and a half percent of the real clear politics average right when they were doing the cutoff for the debates it's like watching I'm a baseball fan as are you and at all times this time of the year I'm fascinated with the wild card race in baseball baseball did a rather brilliant thing a few years ago they expanded the playoffs they added an extra wild card slot you now have several teams competing that wouldn't otherwise. It right. makes for a lot more fun watching the sport. Why not give someone like Johnson? I'm not advocating for Gary Johnson here. I'm just saying that it would be much more interesting for the process in terms of, A, how the process is covered if he were close to getting on the stage. Because 15% is just not a bar he's going to clear. But if he were 8.5%, getting close to 10, the press would pay more attention, maybe get to 10%. But if you had him on the stage on Monday night, you'd have a third candidate in the mix. Maybe that candidate would drive the debate in a different direction. You wouldn't be at the mercy of Lester Holt or whoever the moderator is to bring up other subjects. You might just have a, a better debate. And then the third thing I thought of, Dave, was just we probably need to get away from just having a lone moderator and maybe going back to what we had from 1960 to 1988, which was a moderator with three or four journalists asking questions behind the moderator. Um, whoever is running that debate is in a no-win situation. If, that, if you saw with Matt Lauer uh, earlier this month, the commander-in-chief forum, he got pilloried because why? He went easy on Trump with a wreck. Lester Holt's been beat up now after this debate because he was too tough on Trump. It's like Goldilocks and the Bears. Their yeah. porridge is either too hot or too right. cold. So bring back the journalists and let them ask questions, if you will. But So, yeah, there are all kinds of tactics that go into uh, running debates and all that. And I think the interesting question at this hour is going to be what, if any way, Trump will, you know, will adjust. I will say... Uh all three of your suggestions are okay with me. One and three mm -hmm. strike me as having some chance of passing. Two <laughs> has no chance in the sense that's the fifteen percent. Why would the Democrats? Why would the Democrats and the Republicans want a third-party candidate in who, but, as and, Ross Perot well, did and, very well? Where, but where was Perot in nineteen ninety-two in the polls? Yeah, he was about eight percent in the polls actually at the time right. of the debates. But he had been leading in the summer, and so that was their justification. Yeah, but he he, uh, he was a disruptor. He was yeah. Uh, he was a disruptor. So right. which would be a good thing in my it would, view. It would. But the problem is, I don't think if I were a Democratic National Committee chair, the Republican National Committee chair, I would say, "What a great idea!" Never give a sucker an yeah. even break, right? Right. Speaking of summations, Ronald Reagan, 1980, quote, are you better off than you were four years ago? Is it easier for you to go and buy things in the stores than it was four years ago? Is there more or less unemployment in the country than there were four years ago? James Carville, 1992, Dave. It's the economy. Stupid. Yet you and your friend Doug Rivers, also a Stanford political scientist, Hoover Senior Fellow, have written that the economy is perhaps an overrated commodity in elections. Defend yourself. Well, it's an overrated commodity in the following sense. Um, in um, Ray Fair, an economist at Yale, Doug Hibbs, a political scientist at Harvard and then later from Europe, uh, they and many others brought out uh, models that uh, predicted uh, presidential elections pretty much based on how the economy was doing. Mm -hmm. And it's a pretty simple idea. Retrospective voting, it just says when uh, Bill Whalen or Dave Brady or uh, Jenny Mayfield walk into the polls, 
they kind of look back and say, gee, how'd the economy do, particularly over the last couple of quarters? And if the economy's been pretty good, they are uh, willing to vote, uh, they're inclined to vote for the president or the president's party, mm -hmm. in the case, say, in this case, Mrs. Clinton, as you pointed out, a surrogate, not a surrogate, but uh, it's sort of an incumbent. Um, but those models started, uh, and they work very accurately. It's amazing how accurate they were, but they started to fall apart uh, in the 2000, we now trace it back to the uh, Bush administration, because what happened was when you, in order for those models to work, pretty much everybody's got to agree the economy's improving or it's getting worse. Mm -hmm. It turns out that beginning, I don't know, 2003, 2004, there began to be differences in how Republicans, Democrats, and independents perceived the economy. Mm -hmm. And uh, once that happened, so if Republicans under Bush thought the economy was great and Democrats thought it was awful, then, then those retrospective models don't work. So what, what we meant by the economy is uh, overrated uh, as long as growth is between you know one and two and a half percent, it's not terrible. It's not great. Uh, what happens is partisanship gets in the way right. in terms of those perceptions. So those economic models don't work so well. So if you ask Democrats now, they think the economy. Obama's done terrific with the economy. Republicans think the economy could be much better, mm -hmm. and the result of it is those economic models don't work so well anymore. So partisanship in terms of who can get their own party to turn, who can thump the base. Exactly. So you and Doug have crunched the numbers on this, and you found that going back to May 2015, that the Democrats, in terms of enthusiasm, in terms of how voters identify, they're kind of it's kind of a straight line. I think the number here is about 30, a little under 34 percent, about 33.7 if I read this correctly. Republicans, on the other hand, have a problem. That back in May of uh, 2015, it was about 27 and a quarter percent. It's now down to about 23 and a third. Yeah, so, yeah, I, so I think the biggest advantage uh, Mrs. Clinton has, if you think about how did, so if the economic models don't work so well, how do you, how do, uh, at least I think, I don't want to speak for Doug, but um, how do I think about So how did Obama win? Well, Obama won because there were about 6% more Democrats than Republicans. Right. Obama basically held the Democrats. Uh, Romney held the Republicans. But that means going into the independents, uh, Romney had to make up 6%. Right. And he didn't do it. He won the independents by a little bit, but not enough to win. Mm -hmm. So if today the gap is 85 to 9%, uh, that means that the Democrats uh, have an even bigger advantage, uh, now have an even bigger advantage, and that means Trump has to make up more with independence. Right. Now, the problem is that neither Mrs. Clinton nor uh, Donald Trump have sold a deal to their party. Both are still around, I think she's up to 81, 82 now. He's still around 77, 78. Which is a lot but, better than it used to be. Yes, a lot right. better than it used to be. He's he's on the way up, and she's come down slightly since. Both uh, Romney and Obama were at about 93%. 93%, exactly. Right. So that means that uh, if, uh, and I do think in the long run, uh, and I think the debate helped her on that, uh, Democrats coming home. Right. Uh, that means it's tougher. It means uh, Trump really has to win the independence big. She does. I think she has two fundamental advantages going down there in the home stretch. Number one is obviously just look at the states, Dave, and that she has states she can give away, and he doesn't. He has to begin. The 2012 breakdown is two, 332 to 206. Um, so he has to start with that 206 electoral votes of every state that Mitt Romney won and not give up any of them, North Carolina, Georgia, and Arizona. Right. And maybe he can do that. Then he has to build from that. So he gets Florida, 
and he gets Iowa, let's assume. That puts him up to 253. Then Iowa, of all places, Iowa suddenly looks pretty good state for him. Iowa's kind of quietly been a Republican voting state, and if you look at its elected yes. officials, Great. governor, senators, yep. and so forth, puts him at 259, Dave. Now he's 11 away. So where does he go? If you can't do it in one whole bite, if you can't pick up Virginia or Pennsylvania, he's got to pick off the likes of a Nevada, a New Hampshire, a Colorado, some variation of right. those to get over the top to 270. She can lose these states. So what you're going to see in the closing weeks is she's going to start moving people around. Uh, for example, she has not been in Ohio. She herself, she has not been in Ohio for the last three weeks now. That's a very telling sign. Yes. I would suspect that you will soon see Hillary Clinton people getting in the cars and moving east to Pennsylvania, trying to lock down that state yep. as they've tried to lock down Virginia. He, on the other hand, he has to spread the map and try to go over again. So one advantage is she has states to shed. But the second advantage, she has help within her party. If you've noticed the past few weeks, what are you starting to see? Barack Obama is coming out to campaign for her. Michelle Obama is campaigning for her. Uh, Joe Biden has spent a lot of time very quietly in Pennsylvania. Yep. He's actually very popular because he's, he's from Pennsylvania originally. He's a next-door right. kid in Delaware. Um, Bernie Sanders is starting to turn out for her. Elizabeth Warren. This may not play out in the end because, as we've seen in the two midterm elections with Obama, it doesn't transfer necessarily. Right. That, that A vote for Democrat X is not necessarily the same as a vote for Obama per millennials. But she has this network of Democratic stars out there trying to turn out the vote. Contrast that on the Republican side where it's Trump and it's Mike Pence and Rudy Giuliani, and who am I missing? Just yeah, too many, got it all. Not too no, many Republicans no Bushes, out there. No Romney. Right. Now, again, this could be a very funny electorate, that maybe there is a hidden vote out there. Now, we talk about this a lot on this podcast. Maybe there's a hidden vote out there, and maybe there's enough anger that they want to send a message to the political system, that maybe that prevails for him. But you just look at these two advantages, states she can lose, and people stating her case for her, yeah. maybe that gets her over the top. We should have, uh, so I think one thing that helps with those people going out, and there have been a spate, a flurry of them in uh, recent times, I think one of the reasons for that is they want to encourage registration. So you can register in most states till 29, 30 days, but the registration period is closing down now. We don't have much time. So that uh, flurry of people, it varies from state to state, but by and large, uh, putting the pressure on right now. So in a week, we should have the new registration figures. And to me, that'll be a sign of how much help this has made. Democrats were down in registration in Florida to Republicans after the primaries. Yeah. Uh, the latest stuff I saw out of uh, the Miami paper and the St. Petersburg paper was that's begun to shift and there's been uh, uptick in Democratic registration and same in Pennsylvania. So we'll have better, we'll have uh, for hopefully the next podcast, we'll have better better data on that. But that's one effect, I think, of having all that help. Right. And if you're in Virginia and California, that registration can occur inside of prisons now. Yes. <laughs> Governor Brown the other day signing a bill that allows some prisoners sitting in county jails in California to vote. Did you ever live to see the day when you think this would happen? Uh, no. No. No, but I, I knew that things were changing with voting. I, I have a, a brother who is um, Down syndrome. And uh, I never thought I would see the day that he would vote, but uh, he votes every every two years. They get a bus, uh, a facility where he lives, assisted facility. They take him in and they vote. So the answer is, uh, I'm surprised that it went to prisons, but changes in voting. I, I I can't figure out whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah, we will see. Uh, also, we don't know who they're going to vote for. 
my brother? Or no. no, no, we don't know who the prisoner is going to vote for. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think the better question is: Can a should a disgraced former official who goes to jail should he or she be allowed to vote? That person should probably have their vote taken away. That question is, uh, I think, uh, over time going to be resolved. Uh, I don't know about voting while you're in jail, but uh, if once you're out, yeah. uh, because of the large number of African Americans that have been imprisoned. I believe that uh, the pressures to move to allow uh, former uh, people who have been convicted but are now out, who have paid their dues, I believe that o over time that they will, the rules will change and they'll be allowed to vote. Yeah. So we have a vice presidential debate coming up on Tuesday, October the 4th. Longwood College, Farmville, Virginia. Uh, I went to college at Washington Lee University, which is a couple of hours away. I've actually been to Longwood. Hooray for me. You're the only person who ever heard of it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's on the map. Um, are you going to watch and do vice presidential debates really do much other than let us watch the Lloyd Benson shot at Dan Quayle? It never seems to get old, by the way. <laughs> no, the, uh, no that's, the, that's the only thing I remember from vice presidential debates is the famous shot, you're not John Kennedy. Uh, actually, you know, actually, I remember the 1996 uh, vice presidential debate because it was Al Gore and Jack Kemp. And I remember conservatives being furious at Jack Kemp because Jack Kemp was Jack Kemp in that debate. And what was Jack Kemp at all times? He was a glass half full, optimistic conservative, just did not believe in bare knuckled politics. Yeah. And Republicans watching that just really wanted him to go after Gore and by yeah. extension Clinton. And he just wouldn't do, do it. it. But you know, Dave, it just doesn't matter. Lloyd Benson delivers one of the most stunningly vicious shots at a candidate ever, Dan Quell, saying, you're no Jack Kennedy. And it just crushes Quayle that night. But guess what? Mike Dukak has lost 40 of 50 states. Yeah. No impact there. No, I, I agree. It's very little impact. But that, you know, you're, uh, the story you just told us why you know a lot more about debates than I do. I, I probably will watch a little bit of it, but I can't imagine it. Yeah. I can't imagine it making a difference. Right. Now, when Unless they... Mrs. Clinton uh, gets uh, uh, something happens and she's right. more stumbling or something, which yeah. I doubt. But if one that name, happens, it might. One name that does come up in vice presidential debates, Jim Stockdale. The late James Stockdale, friend of yours, by the way. Yes. Um, tell us a bit about Jim Stockdale. Oh, he was Jim Stockdale. was a great American. And for uh, those who don't remember, Jim Stockdale was Ross Perot's yeah. running mate in 1992, who yeah. had a, also a famous vice presidential. Yeah, so the real trouble with that was, uh, what, if you recall what happened, Jim Stockdale, when, they, when uh, Ross Perot had the American Party, uh, they nominated him as a placeholder, and they were going to hold a convention, and select a different vice presidential candidate. But what happened is Perot decided to drop out. They didn't have any American Party debate. Uh, so what happened is that uh, then when Ross got back in, he, he had no choice. He had to have Jim Stockdale. And um, so Jim Stockdale had a famous speech that was so he had a speech that's been infamous by now. But uh, who am I and uh, why am I here? Yeah. Right, who am I and why am I here? But Jim Stockdale, by the way, was a... Navy Admiral, yep. had been a POW in Vietnam. He's a man who had served his country with a lot of distinction. Yep. He's not a politician. No. But had been now brought yeah. into politics. And, and didn't, uh, didn't know, wrote on Stoics, smart guy. So so, so he goes into the debate. And they he, gave him one week to prepare. One week to prep, but he goes up and on the I stage. I remember I talked to him, and uh, his, the line was, who am I and why am I here? Mm -hmm. Well, actually, he had... Uh, three pages, and it was a very good speech. But on the way up, he was told, on the way walking up, he was told, you can't have any notes. Right. 
and he hadn't memorized the speech because he wasn't a politician. And what he should have done is say, well, if I can't read this speech, I'm not going up. But given the kind of human being he is, he said, oh, those are the rules, okay, and he gave it up. And so it turned out to be, uh, it's on Saturday Night Live a lot, but uh, if you actually had the speech, it was a pretty good speech. Uh, because he wasn't a politician, but he, had, he was greatly indebted to Ross Perot because uh, Ross Perot had given Jim Stockdale's wife uh, money and uh, publicity, helped him get the publicity on Vietnam prisoners of war, mm -hmm. which wouldn't have happened. But the first time Jim met Ross Perot was when he came off the plane from Vietnam. And he always felt indebted. And uh, to, to his great credit, he never, never held that against, uh, never held that against Ross Perot. And, in the end, uh, I saw him maybe six months before he died, and he said, still grateful to Ross Perot, just a great human being. Mm -hmm. So what did he think about the debate process? I mean, did he, did he enjoy it? Did he, did he have ways he'd like no, to No, he did not. Did not enjoy it? <laughs> he did not. <laughs> he did not enjoy it. Okay, so you're going to watch Tuesday night? Uh, yeah, I suppose because out of pro professional duty <laughs> and because you're pushing me on it. <laughs> Otherwise, I probably wouldn't have. <laughs> yeah, I don't mean to shame you. Uh, two more debates after that, uh, October the 9th in St. Louis and October the 19th in Las Vegas. And then it's on to the election after that. So next poll comes out. You mentioned the YouGov Economist poll is coming out on Friday. Friday, the should weekend. be out Friday. What are you looking for? Well, I'm looking to look at, uh, in terms of uh, presidential vote intention by party, mm -hmm. I think the most important thing for her, it's important for him also, but he, uh, he, has, to, he has to get a big win among independents, right. and he has to shore up the party vote in the Republican Party. So if she goes up in the Democratic Party into the high 80s, that's a very, um, so I'm looking at what kind of change is there. I think the last one, she was at 81% of Democrats said they were mm -hmm. going to vote for. If she goes up four or five points among them, that won't be a big change in the polls. Right. One, one or two, but that'll be a good sign that she's firming up that vote. I'm also going to look to see if some of the voters that were, uh, what happens to the Johnson vote, what happens uh, to the Green Party vote, if that's mm -hmm. shifting around a little bit, and then independence. Yeah, I'm looking at the African-American vote. Um, a lot of time, my opinion, too much time actually spent on the birther issue in this debate. Uh, legal immigration they didn't get into, surprisingly enough. Maybe second or third debates they do. But the birther uh, debate was front and center in this. And uh, he spent a lot of time awkwardly trying to defend himself. But she also did something which is both the best and worst of Hillary Clinton, in that she brings it up and she goes after him very hard. And this is what's the best and worst about her. She then takes it and she ties it into a neat bow about America's first black president and then talks about, uh, about Donald Trump maybe being a racist landlord and then Michelle Obama being brilliant at the Democratic National Convention. Good Hillary in that she pushes yeah. all these buttons. Bad Hillary in that in her way it doesn't seem kind of genuine. It just seems like she's just, you know, yeah. was prepared for her. But I'm curious to see if the combination of that Obama starting to get out of the stump, Michelle Obama campaigning, if that's going to start to move black voters. I was a little surprised at the debate by one thing, when Trump, when they said, uh, they said, Trump, well, you know, you were accused of uh, not, uh, your company's not allowing uh, blacks to live in there. Right. And his defense was, it was a big lawsuit. There were a lot of other people sued, which was, well, I didn't understand why the Democrats didn't make more of that by saying, oh, let me see. So, 
other other people discriminated against blacks, so it was okay for you to do so. I found it very strange that they haven't hit that harder. So basket of deplorables, and there's going to be a basket of Trump victims before this is over. And Alicia Machado is the first person in the basket, Dave. There's going to be somebody who is a victim of Donald Trump being a, a slumlord at some time, somebody who was ripped off by Trump, uh, probably a small businessman, and on and go, just a whole list of victims. Trump University. Trump University, exactly. Yeah. That has been around for a while, by the way. Good point. So anyway, well... You know, on the record, you have to watch two days debate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dave Brady, is always good talking right, to you. Thanks. You've been listening to Poll Position, a Hoover Institution podcast on the 2016 election. For more information about the Hoover Institution, please visit our website. That's www.hoover.org. While you're there, I encourage you to sign up for the Daily Report. It provides you studies, analyses, commentaries, and op-eds from the likes of David Brady. You might even find me on there on occasion, all arriving in your inbox every working day. You can also find the Hoover Institution on Twitter, and our, our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. Thanks for sitting in with us today. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more research by our fellows on the 2016 election, please visit hoover.org slash decision 2016. For more podcasts from Hoover, Please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.